0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And uh, the message I would title it, Live Up to the Gospel. And there's a lot here for us. And what if you went to a uh, car dealership to buy a Chevy, a Chevy dealership, and you see the salesman trying to sell you drives up in a Ford, Uh, you would wonder about the credibility of his message when he tries to convince you to buy a Chevy. Or What if you went to a doctor uh, who tells you, hey, you need to lose weight, and yet he is obese and, and greatly overweight himself? You would wonder about the credibility of his message. How seriously would you take it? Uh, there needs to be no gap between what we say with our lips and how we live with our lives. Um, we, how we behave uh, should coordinate with what we believe. We call this an integrity gap or a credibility gap in people if they don't live up to what they say. And we boast that we're not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, but would the gospel be ashamed of us? And how we live. Does our ministry match our message? Well, I remember an old uh, credit card commercial that used to say membership has its privileges. What they don't really emphasize so much is it also has its responsibilities because you have to pay them or they cancel the card. Well, Paul um, is trying to say the same thing about the Christian life. that The Christian life has its privileges and part of those privileges are uh, come with responsibilities that we should live up to what he's, what he has uh, taught about the gospel. Um, we should reflect the salvate message of salvation that he's given to his readers and and Philippi. They should reflect that message of love and peace and joy, the things that he has been emphasizing: their unity, and um, the fact that we belong and are going to heaven. The fact that we belong to God uh, are those reflected in our lives. Now, Paul has uh, been reassuring them of his victory, even though he's been in, in, he is in prison when he writes this. He's reassuring them that he's had victory over his adversaries because of his attitude, and he knows that God is going to deliver him uh, from prison and from the criticism of his adversaries. And he knows, though, that under pressure, that there's always the danger of neglecting our Christian unity. And there was a problem with that unity in the book, we'll find out later in chapter 4, that there are a couple women that couldn't get along in the church, and he has to address that directly in his letter to them. So in the face of opposition, uh, he's trying to encourage the Philippians to be united in their behavior and in their conduct. Because uh, when we as Christians get under pressure, uh, we often can lose it and become divisive or compromising. So, anyway, uh, in verse 27, I'll read that. Uh, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What he's saying in this passage, I think, is uh, live up to the gospel. When he says only, Uh, I think what he's saying is, um, no matter what the outcome or whether, he, because he talked about visiting them, and he says, whether I visit you or not, uh, whatever the situation is, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's interesting that the word he uses for conduct here is not like like he'll often use the word, which is translated walk, uh, for behavior. But here it's a word... That's based on a, a word that comes. We get our word politics from it. The word polis means city, and uh, what he's, I think, is he's hinting at. Since Philippians was a Roman metropolis, and the people there enjoyed citizenship with Rome, and which came with great privileges, I think what he's saying is, uh, do your duties as citizens, or at least he's using that as an analogy or comparison. Uh, do your duty as citizens of heaven just as you would as citizens of rome and he calls them citizens of heaven later in chapter three and verse 20. so he's appealing to their sense of pride and responsibility and reminding them that the higher the privilege the greater the responsibility and that's how our con- what our conduct ought to reflect and let that conduct he says be worthy of the gospel now first of all i think the gospel here when we say worthy of the gospel the gospel reflects a lot of things about God. It reflects his holiness, his justice, his love, his grace, his mercy, his peace. Uh, it, it reflects so many attributes of God. And our conduct ought to also reflect those attributes is what he's saying. When we think of what God has done for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the grace of God who died for us and His de- in his death and his resurrection, uh, the victory that, that is represented there and the salvation that is represented there, he's telling the the Philippians to walk worthy of that gospel in a way that reflects uh, those kind of attributes and actions of God and represent them in your life. Live as a child of the king, as a citizen of heaven. Uh, So what would our conduct today reflect about who God is and what his message to us is? Now I've, I've done a lot of traveling, as you know, and um, there, there's this characterization overseas, and I find it largely true, of the rude American. The rude American is a loud, rude, brash, bold person. That's very much unlike most of the world. Most of the world is a little more retiring and shy and quiet. And I've actually seen Americans in a room joking and and very boisterous and loud to the point where people in a restaurant have had to get up and move or, or either, even walk out of the room. I've seen Americans be so insensitive uh, to other cultures, like in Muslim and Hindu culture, like in Muslim culture where they only show their eyes. Some of the women only show their eyes. They don't show their ankles, maybe their hands and their eyes. And yet they'll walk through an airport in a Muslim country, wearing spaghetti strap tops and short shorts. And, of course, all the men are staring at them. But the point is, is that they reflect America, or sometimes Europe as well, the West. But you see, in some of these countries, like a Muslim country, they think all of the West is Christian. So this person not only represents the West, they represent Christianity to them. That's why they believe Christianity is an immoral religion, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. So un- unknowingly, the conduct of many Americans and Westerners send a message to people of Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist faith that, that Christianity is an immoral, and permissive religion, unfortunately. And then, uh, and then that America is a, <laughs> a rude place as well. Um, it's just our characteristics, I understand that, but we have to be sensitive to other cultures. So is our conduct worthy of the country that we're from and the religion that we represent when we're in other places? And many have tarnished the integrity of the gospel uh, by their actions. When we see a car with a Christian bumper sticker driving down the road, cutting people off, um, or acting rudely, um, we, we, what, what does a, a someone who sees that Christian bumper sticker think of the driver? Or when somebody knows that or hears that you have been baptized into a particular church or, or denomination or religion, uh, and then they see your conduct at home, uh, or at the workplace, what do they think about that profession of faith? Uh, so it's not how we act when we're in church or around church people, but how do we act in our homes, on our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, um, in our social interactions? Does that, represent, does that conduct represent our citizenship in heaven and the God that we purport to, to serve? How do we live up to the gospel? Well, I think in the the rest of the passage, Paul gives uh, three duties of Christians under pressure that help them live up to the gospel. And uh, conveniently, I've got them all starting with an S, alliterating them. And the first one is in the second part of verse 27, where he says, uh, Stand fast in one spirit. So we're to stand firmly together, stand firmly together for the gospel. Um, Standing fast. Uh, again, since it was a Roman colony, they might be familiar with the gladiator competitions that went on uh, in Roman culture. And in, in those competitions, the gladiators, who were usually made up of former slaves, criminals, or captives, they had to fight one another, and they had to stand their ground and and hold their ground. That was part of what it meant. And if, at the end of the competition, if they were at a disadvantage, uh, the other person could kill them, depending on whether the... Uh, governor or the ruler of the games would give a thumbs up, let him live, or a thumbs down, kill him in defeat. So uh, when he's talking about stand fast, it could be that that's what he has in mind. Um, He does talk about standing fast in spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 when he tells us the readers to put on the armor of God and then stand fast, Uh, he tells them. Um, So we have an idea here. That shows Christians standing firmly together, not just individually, but standing firmly together under this pressure that might come from our critics and our adversaries. And the, the second duty is not just to stand, but to struggle together uh, for the gospel. And that comes in the last part of verse 27, where he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, so we should struggle together, not just alone. Um, it's a team sport, we might say. And actually the word struggle comes from the idea of a sporting contest. Um, we get the word agony from it, but it, it meant to struggle. And again, he may have in mind the uh, Colosseum imagery where people might gang up uh, on another to cause their uh, defeat. Uh, but striving together uh, for the faith of the gospel. I think the faith of the gospel addresses what is uh, taught and believed is Christian truth. So he's telling them to struggle together uh, for uh, what is we know as Christians to be true, the things that we understand and believe. And um, we're in a contest, is what Paul is, is telling the readers. That uh, They're in a contest. It's not a playground, but uh, becoming a Christian puts you in a battlefield. And uh, it's not... For a Christian, you might have the tendency or temptation to think that your uh, your all your struggles have ended when it may exactly be the opposite that all your struggles are just beginning, the battle's just beginning, and that we're in a Christian war. Ephesians six again reminds us that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against all the spiritual powers that are against us. There there is a fight. In First Timothy six twelve, he says, uh, "Fight the good fight," to Timothy. So. There, there's no illusion that we become a Christian and we just coast and ease uh, on you know, on a swing set or seesaw of life, uh, but there's a real struggle here together, struggle against the uh, world philosophies, the currents of the world that want to sweep us into um, immorality and gender bending, uh, cultic uh, beliefs. Uh, Uh, The very definition of what life is in this abortion debate, television uh, influences and and penetrates our minds to change our thinking about all these things. The families under great attack from every direction, if if we can even define these days what a family is, according to our culture. And in the schools, the children are being indoctrinated with these kind of beliefs uh, from uh, people who definitely don't hold Christian beliefs that we do so in all ways we're under attack and it's a it's a contest that we're in and we need to struggle together there's no time for a retreat and i, I believe that the early christians i like what one commentator said early christians weren't defeatist uh, they didn't say look what the world has come to which is what we find with many christians today just throwing up their hands in despair and saying look what the world's come to but instead the early christian says look what has come to the world we have the solution to the world. Now let's bring it on and uh, fight the battle. Satan wants us to to give up. He wants us also to uh, be, divide with, from one another and, and be divisive because uh, that strategy is true that he that he uh, uses is to divide and conquer. Uh, but if we stick together and we pray together and we work together, um, if we become Christian compatriots and um, struggle together, as he said, we can overcome a lot of these spiritual uh, powers that work against us. Unity is essential. Uh, We can't do our own thing as a church, um, but we must cooperate with one another in our witness to the world to live up to the gospel. So he has said that they need to stand um, and they need to struggle. And then the third thing we see in verses 20 through 30 is they need to suffer, suffer fearlessly for the gospel. And let me read verse 28 through 30. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now, there were many people who, of course, were his adversaries. He mentions that in chapter 1. They were criticizing him. And, of course, anybody that supported him or tried to live under Paul's teaching would have been uh, targets of these adversaries as well. But he tells them not to be terrified by them, all these people who oppose the gospel, Paul's gospel. Um, And if they're not terrified, that would be proof to them of their perdition. Now, whether that speaks of just their defeat in this life or or their eternal condemnation. It's, it, it's not clear to me anyway. Um, but he says, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. Now, I think here that if, if we're consistent with chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul talks about his salvation uh, while he's in prison, he's talking about either deliverance from prison or deliverance from the accusations of his adversary because of his triumphal attitude. Uh, you remember that the word salvation, more often than not, has a meaning that is not referring to salvation from hell. And I think in this instance, when he talks about proof of their salvation, he's talking about uh, the validation of their victory over their enemies. Because if they stand together and struggle together, they're going to show that they're not terrified of their enemies. Their victory is in Jesus Christ. The word proof is a little strong here, Uh, it could also be translated sign or indication of uh, of something so um, he's telling them that their deliverance from these vicious attacks of their adversaries would be defeated and they would be delivered through them if they had a victorious attitude in jesus christ and weren't didn't give in to being scared and terrified by their enemies so uh, that's what the word terrified means it was used in ancient literature of a horse that was easily spooked so it's kind of like someone who is easily startled but instead we should be bold and that's what the scriptures teach us we're more than conquerors in jesus christ and uh, nobody can condemn us we can't be condemned romans chapter 8 teaches us so it's as if paul is saying to the uh, philippians that hey uh, don't worry if culture and enemies are giving you the thumbs down sign in Jesus Christ, we always have the thumbs up sign. We're always the victor. Our salvation and deliverance is from God. And then he talks about um, through Christ we have been given, granted, privileges of suffering for Him, and so we should suffer for the gospel. And in so doing, we can live up to what it teaches. And uh, when he says "for" in verse twenty nine, I think he's explaining. Uh, why they should not be disrupted by their enemies or scared by their enemies in the previous verses. Because he says that it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So they have been given or granted the privilege of not just believing, but suffering for Christ. Um, One of the privileges, excuse me, one of the privileges given to us is the very opportunity to believe in Christ. I don't think that he's saying here, which some theologies would teach, is that we are given faith to believe in Jesus Christ. He's saying that we've been given the opportunity to believe in Christ. What a privilege that is, is that he came and preached to them the gospel and that they were able to hear it. But not only with that privilege of, of believing in him, that they're given the opportunity to believe in him, comes this privilege of suffering for his sake. And so he looks at suffering, uh, not as we often do in this life, as a burden to bear, but a privilege given by God. Now, of course, this message is completely contrary to what uh, these health and wealth preachers are teaching, that when you become a believer, God's going to give you health and wealth. Paul, we know from his experience, had exactly the opposite. Not only was he physically ill and, and weak, but He also was constantly in a state of some kind of deprivation uh, or conflict or persecution. Uh, So it contradicts the the gospel of health and wealth. Uh, Suffering can actually be a blessing and a gift from God. And if we believe that God has saved us to make us healthy and wealthy, then I think we lose a great deal of insight and understanding of what God is trying to do through the suffering that he has allowed. I don't. I think another misunderstanding is that God brings suffering or causes suffering. And that's not true either. God may allow suffering, but he doesn't himself cause it to happen to us, I believe. And maybe in some situations he would, in the case of a, a if we are being disciplined or chastened by him. But I see in the story of Job, for example, that God allowed suffering, but it was from the hand of Satan himself. So when we are suffering... And 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 considering and I think the in the context, the suffering here is for his sake. So it's for our because of our identity as Christians, not just not just any kind of suffering like like maybe getting an illness or something. But if we suffer for his sake, because we have identified ourselves as Christians, well then that's a privilege to suffer for him. And he talks in the gospels about Jesus talks about taking up his cross, which meant being willing to suffer as he has suffered. And he told that to them right before he went to the cross in Jerusalem. And around the world, people have to suffer many times because of their identity with Jesus Christ. My friend and one of my ministry partners in Pakistan suffers greatly because he's a Christian in a 97% uh, uh, Muslim culture, and he can't get a good job just because he's a Christian. Likewise, in Hindu culture, if you are known as a Christian, you do not get a good job. In fact, friends uh, recently told me that many Christians in uh, India will change their names. They're given Christian names, but they'll change them to something that's kind of neutral so that they cannot be identified by by their Christian faith just so they can get a decent job. Um, But in this culture also, to identify with Christ can also cause us to suffer. I'm thinking of a friend who refused to lie about the product that his company was selling because it went against his Christian principles and because of that the company fired him of course God took care of him and gave him a much better job and that's what we have to believe and have faith in that God will always reward us in our suffering and take care of our needs so uh, suffering for Jesus Christ is a worldwide phenomenon that we see Uh, I think suffering and martyrdom for Christ is probably at an all-time high from what I hear uh, today in our contemporary world, uh, even more so than it was in Paul's world. Um, so uh, we're to suffer for his sake because he says in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Now that word conflict comes from that word struggle again, which we from which we get our word agony. And the Philippians saw Paul going through that struggle and agony, and he's saying, now if you have that same kind of agony that you saw in me, uh, you, you uh, persist in it through faith um, as they get the reports of his suffering. So um, that suffering included uh, perhaps in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, we find that he suffered in Philippi. Uh, could refer to his imprisonment there. He went through his fair share of sufferings. We know that. But Paul saw it as a way of identifying with Jesus Christ and suffering with Jesus Christ. And in uh, chapter 3, in verse 10, he talks about uh, joining Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, Jesus suffered, of course, physically and spiritually on the cross, but he also agonized in the garden before he was crucified where he, he prayed to God and he, and he felt a great pressure bearing upon him such that uh, it looked like he was uh, uh, crying blood or um, blood was coming from him. Such was the agony that he went through. And Paul talks about sharing that kind of suffering with Christ, and entering into the fellowship of that kind of suffering. So not only are we to stand for the gospel if we're going to live up to it, but we should also be willing to struggle uh, together and then suffer fearlessly uh, just as Jesus did and identify with him in his struggles and his suffering. Uh, When we do those things, the world will look at us and they'll see, that uh, we are firm about what we believe, we believe it and hold it together, and that we're even willing to suffer for it and not compromise. And that's how we can live up to the gospel. We, We live up to the gospel that God has given to us of his goodness and grace and his mercy, making us his children and citizens of heaven, whose eternity is guaranteed with him. And uh, so why, why cannot we stand and and struggle and suffer for him? Uh, why is the integrity of the gospel important as we draw to a close here? Well, it's important to reflect the gospel uh, in all, with a, a message and a life of integrity, because Paul elsewhere said that the gospel he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. There's just too much at stake for people to be turned away from the gospel because of how we might behave or the things we might say or how we might compromise in our behavior. So uh, if we give a wrong impression of the gospel, uh, there are eternal consequences uh, to the people that we, we are around and, and are, are influencing or in a family or work or whatever kind of situation. There's a lot of talk these days about the vaccine that's been created against uh, the COVID disease. And I read recently or saw on the news recently that somebody uh, left uh, several hundred vials of the vaccine out of the refrigeration overnight on purpose, apparently. But anyway, uh, it had to be kept extremely cold to uh, uh, to work, to be effective, and yet they left it out overnight. And so they had to toss or throw away a lot of those vials of vaccine. They have been compromised. Uh, If someone was was going to give you an injection of that vaccine that was good, but yet had a a drop of sewage in it, uh, would you take that vaccine? No, because it's been compromised. The integrity has been compromised. And in the same way, if we want people to believe our gospel and to live by our gospel, then we have to have a life of integrity that shows them what we believe uh, is true and genuine uh, because we're living that message out. Um, someone once uh, asked a preacher, they said, uh, well, my, God, my, my neighbors hold to a wrong gospel. What can I give them to show them uh, the true gospel? And he opened his Bible up and read to them 2 Corinthians 3, 2, which says, you are our epistle Written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Uh, In some sense, the best gospel is the way we live our lives before others. And of course, that's not the gospel that will save them. They need to hear the words too. But the words aren't going to mean much to to many people if our lives don't back it up. They're going to see and understand much of the gospel uh, through how we live. And uh, if we're consistent with our message. Let me close with a a poem that has become popular. Maybe you've heard of it some today, and I'll just read part of it. It goes like this. It's called The Gospel According to You. If none but you in the world today had tried to live the Christian way, could the rest of the world look close at you and find the path that is straight and true? You are writing each day a letter to men. Take care that the writing is true. "'Tis the only gospel that some men will read, "'that gospel according to you.'" So, what is the gospel according to you? Are you living up to what you're teaching and preaching? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to share the word, and we thank you for the encouragement that comes through Paul, who suffered for you and yet is able to encourage others who never compromised the gospel message, but is honest enough to tell us that with this message uh, comes suffering, the privilege of suffering for Jesus Christ. As we live our lives out in our circle of influence in our corner of the world, may our lives reflect that gospel that we so firmly believe uh, in a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God of holiness, of righteousness, a God of truth. And may people see that God, and that good news when they see our lives. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.